Yes, let's pray. Lord, that is our desire this morning, is that our lives, our days, every breath would bring glory to your name. You're worthy of glory because of who you are, high and lifted up, the only true God. You're worthy of glory because of what you've done in creating all things, manifesting your goodness, your wisdom, but especially in what you've done by sending your son to rescue us. Through his death and resurrection, we have life. We have forgiveness. We have hope. And Lord, it's in light of that abundant goodness and grace that we come to you with a desire to glorify your name. And we ask that you would help us toward that end, that you would give us a hunger for your word this morning, give us a desire to, to hear from you. And I pray that you would grant us understanding so that we might receive and believe and obey all that you would show us in your word. We pray your spirit would help us towards this for the sake of your name and your glory. Amen. Please turn to Luke chapter 6 once again this morning. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is preaching a sermon. Last week, we gave an overview and an introduction to this sermon, but we really didn't get into the details. Today, we're going to jump into this first section in what is commonly referred to in Luke as the Sermon on the Plain. It corresponds, it's sort of parallel to what we find in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. And our text today will be Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. And we'll work our way through verse 26. Luke writes, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. There's a lot of Jesus' sayings that are pretty famous, very well known, sayings that roll easily off of our tongues, but perhaps none are more well known than, than these statements, what's commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, these blessings and woes. But while they may be familiar for many people, I think too often we fail to understand what they mean and what they are for. Jesus is opening this sermon with a prophetic declaration. Jesus is announcing that the kingdom of God brings about a great reversal. Blessing for those who appear to be most lacking. On the other hand, a great loss, a tragic loss for those who appear to have no needs. And this opening section of his sermon, I believe, is really intended to assure and to comfort and to strengthen those that have made the difficult and demanding commitment to forsake the world and follow Jesus. Jesus addresses these words, as we see in verse 20, to his disciples. 
If you're a follower of Jesus here today, that means that these words are also for you. But there's other people that are present. As we saw last week in verses 17 through 19, there's others that called themselves disciples that were still, as of yet, not fully grasping Jesus' message. There were some that were just interested observers, others who were foreigners. There were probably even some in the crowd who were hostile. They were adversaries of Jesus. They were plotting against him. They're looking for him to slip up so that they can catch him and arrest him. See, Jesus' preaching is going to encourage some, but it's going to warn others. Jesus' words landed that day on the humble and the proud, on the believing and the hard-hearted. Perhaps not everyone here today falls into that category of a true believer in Jesus Christ. That means these words are for you today as well. And I'm eager to jump into this text, look at it together. And I think at the outset, we should notice that it's pretty easy, and many of you guys have read this passage, you've read the Gospels. It's easy to assume that the teachings of Jesus that we find in this sermon is sort of this collection of random statements, that he just kind of moves from one topic to the other, and we don't often understand the, how the whole fits together. Keep in mind, this sermon has a theme. These aren't just random statements where Jesus says sort of different things that come to his mind. He's teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. That's the theme that ties it all together. It's the good news of the kingdom. It's the gospel. Good news means gospel. The gospel, the good news that Jesus is preaching at this point in his ministry, remember he has not yet died and risen again. The good news, very simply, is an announcement that God is doing something, that God is working to fulfill his purposes, that God is at work keeping his promises. He's doing right now, in this moment, as Jesus stands in front of them, he's doing what he said he would do and what they desperately needed. God is providing salvation. God is announcing this good news of the kingdom through his son. Jesus, preaching in the tabernacle, quoted from, or the synagogue rather, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, and he says that the Lord has anointed me to preach good news. So that's what Jesus is doing. So while this sermon will have lots of practical instruction, things that we're supposed to do, Jesus starts off by laying a gospel foundation. He starts off by talking about what God is doing. He starts this sermon by preaching grace, this great reversal that he's talking about with the blessings and woe is really a message of grace. We often call this portion of scripture the Beatitudes because it's things that we're to aspire to be, right? We want to be like the people that get the blessing. I doubt any of you would raise your hand if I said, who here doesn't want to be blessed, right? So we all aspire to this. And while it's possible and even helpful to consider what this text calls us to do, keep in mind, Jesus is primarily talking to people who are already in line to receive this blessing. He's not telling his disciples what they must be. He's assuring them and comforting them and encouraging them because of what they already are. So the emphasis here in this passage is on God's working. It's on God's grace, God's blessing, God's kingdom, what God is doing in the world. It's really not about what we are supposed to do. First and foremost, Jesus isn't saying, here's what you most must be to enter the kingdom. He's announcing and declaring as the ultimate prophet, here's what God is going to do for all who come to him in faith. And it's only after this word of grace 
that Jesus will begin to instruct them and to tell them, here's how your conduct should be transformed if you are a recipient of this grace. So the ethical calls to demonstrate love and demonstrate mercy, all the things we'll look at in the next few weeks, are really grounded in this gracious good news that God's blessing is already theirs. We find the same pattern throughout Scripture. We see it especially in the Apostle Paul's letters. If you're familiar with the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians, you know that Paul often starts out by preaching what we might call the indicatives, telling us what is true, telling us what God has done. So Romans 1 through 11 unpacks the gospel. This is God's righteousness on display. And then it's only when you get to chapter 12 that then Paul turns the corner and he says, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercy of God, in light of everything I said in the first 11 chapters, now here's how you are to present yourself to him. Here's how you respond. We see the same thing in Ephesians, three chapters of the glory of the gospel and what God is doing in the world. And it's only in chapter four that then Paul turns the corner and he says, after all of these indicatives, now I have a few imperatives. Here's what God has done. And now in response to that, here's what you must do. I think Jesus is doing the same thing in this sermon. You could almost paraphrase the whole sermon like this. Beloved, this is what God will do for you in giving you the kingdom. Therefore, as recipients of such grace, love your enemies. Do not judge. Take the log out of your eye first. Conduct yourself as a citizen of the coming kingdom. All of those ethical imperatives are the outworking of this foundational message of grace. So what encouragement is there for us in this word of grace? Well, as we already saw just by reading it, these blessings and woes reveal that the kingdom of God brings about this great reversal. It's a great reversal, a, a, a turning of the tables. And we already saw this back in Luke chapter 1 as Mary receives the, the amazing announcement that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Mary sings this song, and she says in Luke 1.52, that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. There's an anticipation in Mary's heart that God, through his son Jesus, this Messiah, is going to bring about this great reversal. And we see this reversal here in Jesus' sermon as he gives us a contrast. It's a stark contrast. It's, it's a contrast of opposites, profiles of two different types of people. And again, Scripture is filled with these contrasts. We see the contrast in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but instead his delight is in the law of the Lord, right? We see this profile of blessing, and then the psalmist says, the wicked are not so. Instead of being like a tree planted by the water, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. There's a contrast. We see it in the book of Proverbs. There's a contrast between the wise and the foolish, we see it throughout the prophets as there's often a contrast between God's program for salvation and then God's plan for judgment. We see these contrasts time and time again. And here in this passage, we have a contrast between the blessed citizens of the kingdom and those who will experience tragic loss, those who are outsiders, who do not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's consider, first of all, this promise of blessing. 
the, the first profile. We see this in verses 20 through 23. Number one, God's gracious blessing is for those who humbly acknowledge their need for Jesus. I think that's a faithful way to summarize what Jesus is saying in verses 20 through 23, that God's gracious blessing is for those who humbly acknowledge their need for Jesus. He lifts up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you. To be blessed is to be happy. It's to be at peace. It's to have this feeling of satisfaction. To be blessed is to be able to both rest and to rejoice. And everyone wants that. We all desire this. And while people use the word blessed today to describe a lot of very simple pleasures, you know, some college student might get a new pair of shoes and post a picture and hashtag that they feel very blessed, right? We use it to describe simple material blessings, simple pleasures in this world. But in the Bible, this word of blessing, the idea of being blessed, is rooted ultimately in a relationship with God. Again, we see this throughout Scripture. Back in the Garden of Eden, God created the man and the woman, and he blessed them. All their needs were provided for. They enjoyed fellowship with God, all of his provision, and a privileged role in God's little miniature prototype of a kingdom right there in the garden. They were blessed. But the enemy of blessing is always sin. With sin comes the opposite of blessing. With sin comes cursing. As Adam sinned, it brought the opposite of blessing into the world. It brought pain. It brought grief. It brought sorrow. It brought loss. It brought death. Blessing and cursing. The blessing is a right relationship with God. The cursing comes from the sin that separates us from God. We see this with Abraham. God promises to bless him and to bless all the nations of the earth through him. God is working through Abraham to reconcile himself to sinful men so that he can be in a covenantal relationship with his creation once again. This relationship with God, Abraham's relationship with God, later Israel's relationship with God, that's the key to blessing. It's knowing God. Scott Huffman gave us an overview of the book of Deuteronomy this morning in our Sunday school class. As people are faithful to God and obey his law and they enjoy this covenant relationship with him, there's blessing. When they sin against him and violate his law and reject him, it leads to cursing. Again, we mentioned Psalm 1, the righteous who forsake the world and delight in God. They're rightly related to God. They delight in his word. They experience blessing. So throughout scripture, Blessing is always from God and is rooted in a right relationship with God. That's the blessing that Jesus is talking about. So who will receive and experience that blessing? Not just the blessing of new shoes or a job promotion or a girlfriend, whatever it may be. All the grandchildren under your roof at Christmas time, not with the in-laws, right? So what is the key What is the key to experiencing true blessing? Not that stuff. Not the simple worldly happiness. What's the key to experiencing God's favor? A right relationship with him. All that he promises to provide in and of himself for us. Well, Jesus gives us a description of those who are blessed. He gives us four descriptions. And we might be tempted to think these are four different groups, that Jesus blesses the poor and the hungry and those who weep and those 
who are persecuted, but I really think it's better to understand all of these as descriptions of a singular type of person. This is a profile of the blessed person. And he starts off by saying, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, verse 20. Again, to quote Luke chapter 4, as Jesus preaches from Isaiah, he had said in the synagogue, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus comes to preach grace, the Lord's favor, to those who desperately need it. So what does Jesus mean by poor? This is a key question. And there are some who would read this one way, some who would read it another way. We want to read it the way Jesus meant it. What was Jesus' intention? Well, this idea of being poor, it may include material poverty. There were many who followed Jesus and came to Jesus who were poor. But I think it means much more than just having no money. There's a number of reasons why we should think that. Sometimes poverty, according to Scripture, can be the result of foolish living. Read the book of Proverbs. Those who don't work hard, those who don't plan for tomorrow, those who squander what they have on things that are a waste will experience poverty. Sometimes poverty is just the result of foolish living. Sometimes poverty can even be divine judgment. You read the Old Testament, you see there's people who experience crushing poverty because of drought, because of oppression from occupying foreign powers, and it's divine judgment for their idolatry. So merely being poor does not automatically mean you're right with God. In fact, we actually have examples of believers in the Bible who are very wealthy. Nicodemus followed Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea followed Jesus. Those were the two that made sure he was buried and put him in a tomb. They had the means and the resources to do that. There's many Old Testament saints like Job and Abraham and David who were incredibly wealthy. So wealth does not automatically mean you're on God's bad side. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul gives Timothy, this young pastor, instructions on how to pastor rich people. And his instructions, to summarize, is not that they should repent of being wealthy or renounce all of their goods. Rather, he tells them, be generous and don't give in to the temptation to trust in your riches. I think we're helped here if we compare this sermon with the Sermon on the Mount. There in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, highlighting that while there may be a physical component to this poverty, there's really an internal component that is essential. The word poor here has the idea of being in desperate need, an utter sense of dependency. And therefore, those who are poor in spirit, those who know their need, they look in faith to God. That's the mark of the person who is blessed. Salvation is not a matter of the bank account. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Being rightly related to God doesn't depend on your financial position. It depends on your spiritual posture. Do you approach God as one who is desperately aware of your utter need for what only he can provide? Psalm 34, 6, the psalmist writes, this poor man cried, 
And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm 40, verse 17, the psalmist writes, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. We see in the heart of worship in the Psalms a recognition that we have nothing apart from God and that we need him. And the right response of that is to cry out to him in dependence. Only those who sense their desperate need will come to Christ. That's why Jesus will later say in Luke chapter 18, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the temptation for those who are rich is to trust in their riches. That's what's spiritually deadly. It's easy to have no true sense of our neediness. But those who sense their need for God, for his forgiveness, for his grace, for his power to rescue our lost souls, Jesus says, if you recognize that and you're one of his disciples, you've come to him with that need, Jesus says you're blessed. And what is this blessing? It's nothing less than the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor. Why? For yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus says to those who sense their need and they come to him with that need, he says, you receive God's promises. You share in God's purposes. You enjoy the status, the exalted status of a citizen in God's kingdom. And you own a share in the glory that is to come. Blessed are you. Notice he doesn't say that yours will be the kingdom someday, although that is true. He says yours is the kingdom. What does he mean by that? We talked last week about what the kingdom of God is. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule, rightly related to him and enjoying fellowship with him. And there's a future aspect to this kingdom that when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, all things will be made right, evil and suffering and sin done away with. And there will be joy and glory and blessing. We're not there yet. This is not yet the kingdom. We're standing here today, sitting here today in an outpost of the kingdom The church is to be an embassy for the kingdom. We're ambassadors for that kingdom, but we're in a foreign land. But listen, we have the passport. If you're a follower of Jesus, the kingdom is yours. You are on your way, and the reality of what is to come, this is important, the reality of what is to come for citizens of the kingdom is so significant that it means joy now. It means blessing now. It means hope and comfort and peace now. It means righteousness now. Yours is the kingdom. Those who know their need come to Christ. He says, blessed are you who are poor. But there's a second description. He says, blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you, verse 21, who are hungry now. Why? For you shall be satisfied. This idea of hunger is really another aspect of what it means to not just know our sense of need, not just know that we are needy, but to feel it. Blessed are you who deeply feel this sense of neediness. And again, this is about more than just physical hunger, although it may include that. This is a lack of satisfaction with the world. This is a lack of satisfaction with the things 
in the world. Again, to parallel this to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew writes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in a number of ways. We are hungry for righteousness in our own lives. How many of you experience a holy dissatisfaction with your own life, with the measure of Christ-likeness that is present in you, with the fruitfulness that is in your life, with the holiness that is in your life, with your victory over sin and, and, and the good fruit of the good works that glorify God. There should be a hunger and a longing to see the righteousness of God manifested in our own lives. There ought to be a hunger for God's righteousness and justice in society. As we look outside of our own selves and look around the world around us, we see how broken it is, how corrupt it is. We see suffering and pain and evil and darkness, and we long for things to be different. We know that this is not the way things are supposed to be, and it causes us to cry out for Christ to return. Ultimately, this hunger and thirst for righteousness is a hunger to know God himself, that there's nothing in this world There's no experience that can satisfy us, even no experience of our own performance. There is nothing other than seeing the face of God that can truly satisfy our souls. As Psalm 42 verse 1 says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There's a hunger, there's a thirst, there's a longing that only God can satisfy. Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. For those who hunger like this, God gives the rich blessings of his grace. I love Isaiah chapter 25, this promise of the kingdom that is to come. It describes that there's going to be a feast, a great table that is spread by God himself. Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. God is spreading a banquet for those who hunger for him, those who have come to him with their longings. In John chapter 6, Jesus would teach that those who come to him will never hunger or thirst again. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him to eat and to drink will be satisfied. Blessed are those who know their need but feel that need. They feel that hunger and longing. Jesus says, you are hungry now, but you shall be satisfied. There's a third description of the blessed man, the blessed woman. He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Again, we need to clarify Not all weeping is honoring to God. Sometimes our tears actually expose the fact that we worship something else. It's idolatry. If we read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul will write that there is a worldly kind of grief that leads to death. But there's a godly kind of grief that leads to repentance and life. So it matters that it's the right kind of grief. It's a grief that, again, is oriented 
towards God because of an awareness of our need. Remember, this, this is all descriptions, I think, of one kind of person, a person who is poor, who knows their neediness, who longs for what God can provide and is properly grieved over what should grieve them. We ought to be those who weep over personal sin. James 4 verse 9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James is talking about repentance. That our hearts are broken. That we grieve over our sin. It's an expression of humility. And God blesses that. God exalts those who humble themselves in that way. Psalm 51 tells us that the sacrifices of God are what? It's a broken and contrite spirit. That's what pleases him. We weep over our personal sin. We also weep over the effects of the curse. And Jesus did this when his friend Lazarus died and he saw the grief on Lazarus' sisters that they were bearing, Jesus himself wept. Weeping over brokenness and death in the world, knowing this is not how things are supposed to be, and people are suffering. Jesus wept out of love for the lost. He wept as he looked at Jerusalem, and he saw that they were rejecting him, rejecting the offer of good news. We're instructed in the New Testament to weep with those who weep, that we bear one another's burdens in this way. There's a kind of weeping that is not born out of our idolatrous love for the world, but is actually expressive of our, the fact that we know how needy we are. We are sinful people. Our world is broken. People suffer. And the faithful see all of that, and they look to God. And their tears are offered up to him. And the psalm says he stores all of those tears in a bottle. Those tears are precious to him. The scripture teaches us that this kind of mourning, this kind of weeping, is destined to experience God's comfort. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In Revelation chapter 21, we're told of a future experience when Christ returns that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. When his kingdom is established, those tears will experience God's comfort. And this divine comfort brings about a great reversal. Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. It's not just that he takes away the tears. He puts a joy in our heart that results in laughter and rejoicing. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Jesus looks on those who have come to him because they know their need and they're broken over their sin and they're longing to see the world renewed. And he says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. There's a final description of the blessed. We find it in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. There's a progression here. There's a progression here. Those who, who sense their need, they identify sin in themselves and in the world as the problem, and so they come to Jesus. The world won't always like that. It's a progression here of, of hatred when people hate you. This is an emotional 
attitude towards the followers of Christ. And then it's expressed verbally. They revile you. This emotion causes people to attack. It leads to actions like social exclusion. It says, blessed are you when they exclude you. For many Jews who chose to follow Jesus, they would have been banned from the synagogue. This was cancel culture in the first century. You follow Jesus, you're going to lose everything. Your ability to do business in the world, family relationships, access to the synagogue, you're going to be excluded. Social ostracism. And many times it even comes from the religious sector. Finally, it results in their name itself being spurned as evil. This is total rejection. Blessed are you when you experience this kind of hostility. Where does this hostility come from? Well, it's not because you have wronged them. No, it's because of their loyalty to Christ. Jesus connects it. He says, when you experience all of that because of your relationship with me, because you are loyal to me, because you are following me, that's where the blessing is. Those who are spiritually broken before God, they will come to Christ, and there will be a cost that may even result in physical poverty, physical hunger. It will result in social hostility. It may lead to loss and weeping. There is a high cost to following Jesus. But Jesus says, if this is your experience, if that happens to you, he says to rejoice and to leap for joy. That struck me studying through that. He doesn't just say rejoice. That would have been enough. He doubles down on it and says leap for joy to even express that joy physically. Why? How insane is this, to rejoice when everyone in the world hates you, when they're hostile towards you, and when you even suffer consequences because of that? Why would we rejoice? Jesus answers in verse 23, for this reason, behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Christians, sharing in the reproach of Christ also means we will share in his glory. Do you understand what is meant by sharing in his glory? What the world looks on with disdain, God looks on with great pleasure. God sees it. God honors it. Such loyalty to Christ will not go unnoticed. It is worth it. I think the reason that we grieve and we mourn so much over being hated by the world is because we value it too much, and we undervalue the glory of Christ. We underestimate the significance of the reward that is coming, and that's why there's little joy, and we tend to feel sorry for ourselves when we experience things like this. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. It's temporary. But the things that are unseen, those are eternal. Listen, the kingdom of God brings this gracious and glorious reversal. A kingdom for the poor. Satisfaction for the hungry. Joy for the mourners. A reward for those who have been persecuted and deprived. This is good news. 
In the coming of Christ, we experience the blessing of God. We come to him, we find right relationship with God and all the blessings that come with it. This is a message of grace. It's grace for those who know their need, who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, their complete inadequacy. If you have a desperate sense of your emptiness, then come to Jesus. He says, those who have nothing but come to me will be given everything. This is an amazing blessing. It's good news. But then Jesus turns the tables. And he gives us a contrast, a sober warning. The flip side of everything that Jesus has just said is also true. The flip side is just as true. So if, first of all, we see that God's blessing is for those who humbly recognize their need and come to Jesus, the reverse is true, that righteous judgment is for those who proudly reject Jesus. God's righteous judgment is for those who proudly reject Jesus. We see this in verses 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This statement of woe is a prophetic pronouncement of judgment. It's judgment. It bears with it this idea of loss and grief and the opposite of blessing. It's cursing. Jesus preaches here like a prophet. He is not thundering as some sort of, you know, giving these angry threats. He's simply announcing, listen, this is how things really are. This is how things really are. And if you're on the wrong side of it, that's a tragedy. He gives four descriptions of those who do not experience God's blessing. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. These are those who are rich in this world only. Those who are rich but apart from Christ. And those because of their riches who are self-reliant. It's very possible Jesus had in mind those who sought their riches and gained their riches at the expense of others. Not all wealth is ill-gotten gain, but some is, especially in that day. James chapter 5, we see a parallel to this. James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Sarcastic statement, by the way. It's the wrong kind of treasure. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Jesus speaks to those who are rich in that sense, who boast in their wealth and who step on other people to get there. And he says, there is judgment coming. The prosperity of those who reject the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the authority of the king, and the way of life that he commands, those who reject all of that, their wealth is temporary. Those who choose comfort and gratification in this age, Jesus says, you'll receive it, but that's all you'll get. The most blessing they will ever taste is right there in those riches. They will have nothing in the age to come. 
He says, you have received your consolation. That's all there is, is the temporary, fleeting, shallow pleasures of the wealth that they have lived for. He describes these people, secondly, as those who are full. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. These people are self-satisfied. They have no sense of need for Christ. He describes them as those who laugh now. He says, you shall mourn and weep. This laughter is a proud disdain for others. It is scornful. It is condescending. It's self-confidence. They laugh when they should not. He says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. These people are often accepted by the world. They've sought the approval of man, and having done nothing to jeopardize that approval, they've never offended anyone. They've sort of promoted their own glory rather than sacrificing for the glory of Christ. They feel pretty confident. They say, you know what? We're in the majority. Everybody likes us. I'm on the right side of history. But they, just like the previous generations who rejected God's prophets, are actually destined for judgment. And it doesn't matter if the whole world approves of you, if God condemns you. The portrait of the rich that is given here is marked by a rejection of the kingdom message. It's self-reliance, it's false assurance, it's a worldly approval, and it ends with tragedy. It ends with loss. It's been well said by others that for the Christian, for those who know Christ, This is the most we'll ever have to go through hell. This is the worst things will ever be for us. It's what we're going through right now. And the tragedy is that the flip side is also true, that for the unbelievers, this is the closest to heaven that they will ever get. In hell, all comfort will be a thing of the past. In hell their former satisfaction is going to be replaced by an eternal emptiness. In hell, their former laughter will be turned to weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. In hell, the approval of the world will mean nothing because they will suffer the eternal condemnation of God. Revelation 3.17 says, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. There's a great reversal that is coming. Those who seem to have nothing in this world, but they have Christ, they're going to experience unbelievable blessing. And those who seem to have it all in this world, if they've rejected Christ, they lose it all. Remember here that Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to some who would suffer at the hands of the wicked, those who would be persecuted. They would suffer poverty, and they would weep as their loved ones were thrown in prison and put to death. They would experience social ostracizing by everyone around them. How could they do what Jesus is about to say next? How can they love their enemies How can they turn the other cheek? How can they not judge and condemn? Only if they believe in God's judgment. So while Jesus is pronouncing these woes, this too is meant to encourage his disciples. That listen, God is going to deal with that. You just worry about loving them, following me. God is going to make all things right in the end. For those mixed among the group who are not genuine, 
for those who may not have been sincere, for those who were not serious about following Jesus, for the interested observers and the hostile adversaries that were lurking on the edges, this message would have served as a warning to them. It's a warning that the establishment of God's kingdom brings about this great reversal. And will they recognize their need for Christ? Are they prepared for that moment when the kingdom of God is established? If you're a disciple of Jesus today, I hope you've been encouraged by this message. The truth of this reversal, God's blessing is meant to strengthen your faith, to assure you that it's worth it to follow Jesus, to remind you that it's worth it to lose everything and suffer loss and forsake the world to follow Christ. God sees that. God honors that. He rewards those who cling to his son out of a desperate need for what only he can provide. Know this, Christian. Oppressors will be judged, the tables will be turned, and God's blessing will be poured out. And while this message is primarily about what God does, it's a message of grace, I do want to close just with a few implications that we ought to consider. Because there's, I think, even for Christians, there's a few temptations we need to be on guard against. And the first is a temptation to self-pity, and a temptation towards fear. Just to speak very practically, we live in a world where a lot of bad stuff happens. And sometimes bad stuff happens to us. Sometimes we face hostility, opposition. And there's a temptation to become fearful or angry, to become worried. This isn't original to me, but there's one, I think, very astute observation that's been made over the last several years that things are changing in our country. When our nation was first founded, our culture was very positive towards Christianity. In fact, felt like it was necessary for a good society to be Christian in its essence. And over time, as the United States became more and more secular, things started to change. There was a period in our history as a nation where our country had a fairly neutral attitude towards Christianity. That's great for you. You want to be a Christian, follow Jesus, believe the Bible? That's fine. You know, to each their own, this attempt at true pluralism. But things have changed. We no longer live in this neutral world. It's become, as one author puts it, a negative world, where to be a Christian is no longer something that is smiled upon, something that earns scorn and derision and opposition. We live in a negative world. And some people see this, some Christians may see this as a call to arms that we need to fight back. But Jesus says that it's a call to joy. It's a cause to rejoice. Rather than respond with fear, rather than respond to this new reality with self-pity, rather even than getting angry, Jesus says you should rejoice when you experience hostility from a world that is negative towards the light. The darkness hates the light. They hated Jesus. They will hate those who follow Jesus. That should be a cause for joy. We ought to be realistic, recognize what we're up against, consider how best to move forward and keep sharing the gospel and persevere. We'll have to face that opposition. But we should do it with joy. When we go to battle, it should be with joy. When we suffer loss, we should rejoice. When we recognize that things are changing, the thermostat on the wall is different now than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Jesus says, rejoice when you experience that opposition. Do not give in to the temptation 
to self-pity or fear or anger. There's a second temptation I think we as a church might be prone to. Do not give in to the temptation to self-reliance. Self-reliance is dangerous. We're a church that has a lot of hardworking people here. You guys are a hardworking bunch, and that's a good thing. You've taken the exhortations of the Proverbs. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. You guys work hard so that you owe nothing to anyone except love, as Romans tells us, so that you can provide for your family, as Scripture calls us to do. That is a good thing. But beware, because it's possible to become the kind of people who refuse to acknowledge our neediness. No matter how hard we work, no matter how strong we think we are, we have to always recognize that before God, we are absolutely needy, that we are a weak people, and we need his grace on a daily basis. So keep working hard, but we have to do it with a recognition of where we really stand before God. A final temptation we might succumb to is a temptation that seeks worldly approval. I think at the root of much compromise in the church today, and we've seen this over the last few years, that there's compromise in the church out of a desire to be approved of by the world. We're afraid to be thought of as backward. We're afraid to be thought of as uneducated. We're afraid to be thought of as bigots or narrow-minded or biased or hateful. It shouldn't matter. If our aim is to please God, to believe his word, and to receive his approval, then let the world say what they say. Proverbs tells us that the fear of man lays a snare. It will trap you. It will trip you up. It will enslave you. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. We need to be on guard against those temptations as a church. If you sense in your own heart a drift towards a twisted view of yourself, that you are a proud, self-reliant person, if you sense in yourself a, a twisted view of the world where you put too much stock in what they say and you desire the blessings that they might be able to offer you, then let the words of Jesus today recalibrate your thinking. Let the words of Jesus recalibrate your emotions, recalibrate and redirect your desires. Believe in these promises. They are meant to encourage and also to sanctify. Listen, following Jesus is hard. There's a cost. And the only way followers of Jesus can persevere and be faithful to Christ, the only way that we can have joy in the midst of difficulty and loss is if we believe this message of grace. There's a great reversal coming. And the kingdom of God is for all who come to Jesus, who humbly acknowledge their need and trust in him. Father, I pray for any in our number today who may not yet be disciples of Jesus Christ. I pray that they would see today the stark contrast between the emptiness of what the world offers and the richness of your kingdom. I pray that you would open their eyes to the glory of the gospel, that they would come recognizing their sin and their need, that they would trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus to save them, that they would believe in your promise of grace, that they would recognize what they need is not to do something for you. What they need is what only you can do for them. Pray that they would believe in this gracious gospel. And Lord, for those of us who know you, encourage us, strengthen our faith, sanctify our thoughts and our desires, we pray in Christ's name, amen.